it's just hard as an Australian fan to take New Zealand seriously because whenever they seem to come to Australia, they don't turn up and they just end up getting swept in every series. The second they step onto these Australian shores, that they're not really a competitive side. Welcome back to Cricket Central, the podcast where we discuss all the stories, big and small. It's all four of us back here this week after a two-week break um, where much has happened in the world of cricket um, and indeed uh, across the broader world too. We've had uh, some good cricketing events, some bad cricketing events um, and a very sad event obviously with the Queen passing as well. We, we would be remiss of us to uh, not at least mention that at the start of the podcast. So. I know Pearson and myself in particular were quite uh, sad uh, by that event. I'm not sure Novod so much. I don't know at all about Ethan, but uh, yeah, a, a monumental event in, um, in history. That's for, for sure, guys. Um, and then obviously we've had um, some great joy for Novod, though, with the Asia Cup victory of Sri Lanka. Um, we had England... Uh, wrapping up their series against South Africa in dramatic fashion um, in just over two days. Um, and of course, we had, you know, a pretty ordinary um, thing that you expect to happen, really. Um, nothing that amazing with Australia and New Zealand playing. Australia winning 3-0. You wouldn't really expect anything um, less than that when those two teams play, really. But uh, we can discuss that um soon as well uh, but how are we all guys uh Navaj, how are you yeah i'm good um just had the uni break so pretty calm right now but i've got a few exams next week and a few assessments coming up so the the yeah. dread is dread is slowly coming up on me now well have you i know that you were awaiting a um quite an important interview um as well has that happened yet yeah that actually happened this morning so Oh. Uh, I think it went quite well. Um, and yeah, well, hopefully we'll, we'll see how, how it goes, how the result ends up. Oh, yes. Well, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll hear some good news soon. Ethan, um, it's been even longer since you were last uh, on the podcast. So uh, what have you been up to uh, during the time? Not a whole lot, honestly. But uh, I, I must say, missing the last podcast, I, I did have it on in, in the in the car when I was, when I was driving around. Oh. Quite, quite quite a good listen, uh, if I if I do say so myself. But I, I will uh, <coughs> urge the listeners not to refer back to the final probably minute of that podcast because we we talk about predictions for the third Australia Zimbabwe game, and if you play play that clip alongside the actual result, we'll probably seem a bit like morons. But uh, <laughs> no, it, was, <laughs> it was it was certainly certainly a yeah good good couple of weeks and and good to listen to the podcast too. Oh, that's it's nice of you to give us one extra listener. Um, <laughs> that's uh, always much appreciated. Um, and Pearson, lastly, uh, how's uh, your week's been? Fine. Not had much to do since Parliament got cancelled, so I'm technically yeah. out of work at the minute. Yeah, I know. I I, I noted a a bit of uh, perhaps Republican sentiment slipping into your your talk, just at the anger of uh, the Queen. Daring to make your your Parliament week cancel. <laughs> yeah, not ideal, but we'll make do. Yeah, yeah, and of course, during the two weeks, I was over in Canberra for a couple of days and saw the the weird and wonderful world of uh, Navon and Pearson's life. Um, ended up yeah, in a I, karaoke bar at one stage, which I wasn't expecting. But, uh, I don't know. I don't know if my world's a bit weird. I think it's more Pearson's world. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would that would be fair. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know how you put up with him, uh, Navod. Yeah. Uh, anyway. With, with great difficulty, with great difficulty, <laughs> the answer. Yeah, no, that was good fun. But uh, we'd better get on to some cricket because we've got a lot to discuss. Um, and, well, we'll start off with um, that English victory um, in the third test against South Africa, winning by nine wickets in basically two days, only a, a few overs more than two days. Um, and Ethan, I'll start off with you. The tour that um, began with such excitement for South Africa ended with them scoring just 118 and 169 um, in the final test as England's quicks tore through them. Um, and, well, it was it was quite a turnaround across the series. Yeah, well, we saw, sort of saw the, the mediocrity of South Africa's batting come to the fore in the first test. And I guess it was highlighted... We spoke about how pretty much everyone just hit 20s and 30s, and there was a couple of, you know, more more significant scores from the openers. But 
thankfully they got away with it because of a great bowling performance in that test. But they've really been overwhelmed in the last four innings. They didn't manage 200, and it was really you know signs of a weak batting a batting lineup that couldn't cope with um, good English bowling and, and some tough conditions as well. We saw a bit of panic come into their their team selection in the third test. Of, uh, Boulder supposedly brought in to strengthen up the batting, um, but it, it didn't really help. So I guess the bowlers can only ever do so much. And with you know two sort of mediocre batting lineups, but England having a little bit of form on their side and a little bit of uh, tactics go their way, you, this is sort of what you'd expect, I guess, coming coming through that that South Africa team. Um, but it is disappointing given that they've they've come up a couple of really strong series performances against India and New Zealand in the past. Yeah, I think uh, apart from um, taking it up to the English in that first test, they were just outclassed in the end, really, which is sad to see, but shows they've still got a, a way to go, I would say. Uh, but uh, Pearson, you were crying doom and gloom after the first match, um, saying that you wouldn't win at all in the series. Um, but in the end, you win the series 2-1. Um, and crucially also, you win without Joe Root having scored a 50. Um, so some good signs for the English. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pleased you included that last stat. So I think that is always <laughs> very important to bring up, particularly on this podcast. Every time England have success without the aid of Joe Root. But no, I'm... Honestly, I think I just miscalculated how poor at batting South Africa are. They had, what, 150 in the entire series, I think, is the figure they ended up with. Cyril Irwi, however you say that, I've never been able to pronounce that name. But he, I think, hit 70-odd in the one good innings they had in that first test. Other than that, they're just quite underwhelming. I mean, I, I look at the side, the openers look okay, although even... Elgar looked a bit out of form. Peterson can't buy a run. Rassi got injured. Rickleton couldn't buy a run. Zondo was... He could hang around, but he couldn't score. Verena's honestly one of the worst keeper bats I've seen. They just lack batsmen. Their bowling attack is very, very good. And I think that's why particularly myself freaked out at the end of the first test. So I assumed they could just roll us for 150 every game and that would be that. And just to some extent, except for that second test, they did roll us for 150 every game. Where we did manage to come back is they couldn't exceed 150 either. I must admit, I came into the series thinking it'd be a really good, tightly fought series. And it's been a bit underwhelming for me. No games were close. All games were low scoring bar one innings most of the time. And even the first test, it was an innings win without any score passing 330. So they certainly wasn't the most impressive series I've seen, but it's promising signs for England and less so for South Africa. I think they just need to work on their batsmen and then maybe they'll come back and start winning some more tests again. Mm, yeah, no, the, the question you raised there of their batting order, even, even when they do have good innings, um, like you talk about Evoe um, and Elgar had a couple, but even when they bat well, none of them seem to really have the fluency of sort of the top batsmen in world cricket. And it sort of raises the question of, are any of their batsmen, do you think any of their bats would really have the ability to become sort of a world-class batsman that they can rely on consistently? Ethan, I'll, I'll go to you on that. Do you see, I know there's Peterson there, um, who there's a, a lot of hope on, but you know, who is the next star going to be for South Africa? Yeah, I think they're they're probably struggling to to find one at the minute. They're, they're players with pretty pretty solid domestic records, a couple of them averaging above fifty, and they've all shown glimpses of it. Even though Pearson's had a, a go at Carl Verena, he did hit a very good one hundred and thirty six, I think, in in that New Zealand uh, New Zealand series. So that they on their day they can all perform, but the issue is that that almost never happens. And if it's once in every ten innings, it's, it's probably not enough. Um, and even Peterson, who's probably the, the shining light in their team, he had, was very mediocre in the counties. So it was hard to expect anything more than 20s and 30s from him. So going forward, I'm not sure they do have this, this shining light of a batsman. And I think they'll probably just be heavily reliant on their bowling attack. And Navod, just jumping across to um, another batsman who struggled quite significantly recently in Zach Crawley. 
Um, he finally, I guess you could say, rewarded the faith, although I don't know if 150 is enough to sort of say that, but it was an impressive innings um, nonetheless in um, that final match. Just looking what his um, official, what the actual score was. I can't seem to find it here, but it was a 60 or something, wasn't it, in quite quick fashion. Um, do you think that this uh, justifies um, McCullum sticking with him? It's interesting. I think just like it sort of kind of goes in, in tandem with what Ethan was saying, right? One performance, does that really necessitate staying in the side? And I mean, I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. I think eventually he has to be dropped whether, you know, if he just keeps doing the spontaneous performance to the selectors, if you drop him now, it just seems kind of unfair, right, to do that. So, yeah, I think you have to drop him at some point, but him getting a 50 now, and it was quite an impressive 50. I was really, I was like, oh, the 100 season ended the week before, and, you know, he's playing <laughs> like the 100. But, you know, it was it was a weird one. I, and he played very well, but whether you drop him now or drop him later is another question. If he can continue and replicate this sort of, not exactly the same pace, but you know the same consistency. Then, yeah, by all means, keep him on the side. But I think we've sort of seen with Crawley across this uh, English summer that he's not really that consistent player for England. So, might be time to uh, yeah drop him. Yeah, Pearson, it is the conundrum with Crawley because you know we mentioned it a few times. You can see why they are persisting with him, even though he's so inconsistent. Because when he does perform, he really does fill a hole um, for you guys. And if he was able to do this a bit more consistently, he would become a great, great player for you, wouldn't he? 69 of 57 was the official um, score he got there. Yeah, look, I, I find this stupid. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have another Pearson rant here. Basically, what's just been said is, if a batsman scores runs, he fills a hole. Of course he does. No, when no, he hits 69. Yes, it it's is. doing it when quickly hits... at... Doing it quickly at the top of the order, setting the Who time. Who gives a toss? If he had 69 off 500, that's still 69. I'm bit, I'd rather a player... And it's, it's aesthetically pleasing as well. Yes, it is. Yeah, exactly. You see that? He's, 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 the, he's the most perfectly mediocre batsman to ever exist. Every time his spot comes into consideration, he hits the most boilerplate 35 ever and then saves one innings of summer. Not even one innings a series, one innings a summer to go out and hit a nice watchable 70. What 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 has he tangibly done so far? So he hit that 70. You go back through the whole rest of the summer. He did nothing. Yeah, he did absolutely school, nothing. Anyway. Of what? Yeah. He hit 46 in the opening test against another... New oh, yeah, Zealand and we got rolled for 200. The idea that we're decrying a 46 as some remarkable total is ridiculous. We have an opener here who's averaging 23. Why are we picking an opener averaging 23 and saying, just because once every 20 innings, he hits an attractive 70, he deserves a long run in the side. It doesn't make sense. Lees isn't much better. Crawley can't face spin, so God knows what's going to happen when we end up in Pakistan. I'd like to see neither of them on the plane, but the chances of that happening are as close to zero as one can get. So... It's unfortunate he'll continue to fail consistently for England. He'll continue to set records for being awful. And we'll have to keep putting up with it in hopes that he occasionally does something impressive. That's my take on Zach Crawley. Yeah, well, he looks good when he does it. So that's all I care about. <laughs> um, and when you're winning, you may as well just stick with the same team, I think. No need to, to change anything that, that's working well. Um, Another player who performed um, impressive, not just in that game, but across the series, um, was Ollie Robinson. Finished up with 12 wickets um, over just two games, um, missing the first one. Uh, and then obviously getting a, a five, for, five for 49 um, in the first innings um, and a two for in the second innings, a crucial part of that victory, Pearson. Um, and just taking further steps in his rise to becoming the, the next great English bowler. Yeah, un unlike Zach Crawley, he's in the team because he actually performs well. And it's been very impressive to see what Ollie Robinson's done in an England shirt. I think we have definitely seen a switch from his earliest stints in Australia and then at home to India and that one test on debut against New Zealand. 
the fitness has definitely changed. I know I've had a few conversations with people where the comments have been. The big change is he actually looks fit. He can bowl quicker as the day goes on instead of slowing down to sub-sam current pace. So it is good to see that he's able to keep his pace up. I think he did bowl the quickest spell of his England career in either the last test or the second yeah, test. The I'm second not test, sure think, which. Yeah. Second test, okay. So clearly he's back and he's a bit fitter. He's probably got as good of accuracy as anyone in world cricket, and it's working. I would like to see how he goes in the subcontinent. I think Pakistan will be very interesting. It's definitely a place that tests your fitness, and unlike in Australia or in England or wherever, I think they're the only two countries he's played so far, he probably doesn't get as much assistance in Pakistan. So, yes, he looks very good. Yes, I think he's one of only two bowlers with his wickets or more to average sub-20 for England ever. However, I do think we need to see a bit more of him overseas before we say that he is this generational talent that we all seem to be inclined to say that he is. Yeah, well, you've had Broad and Anderson who have been great but never performed in Australia, so I fully expect Ollie Robinson. I, I, I disagree. <laughs> I, I, would, I, would, I would put the comment out there, Anderson averages less in Australia in Ashes series than he does in Ashes series in England. Whether that's because he can't perform in England or because he performs in Australia is up for debate. But yeah, Yeah. I mean, generally, and I think you would agree with this to some extent, particularly 1718 would be a good example of the Australians just survived Anderson and Broad Mm. and then just cashed in against the first change bowlers. So I think that's slightly harsh, but it it is definitely something to watch with Robinson, whether he can perform overseas. Uh, Ethan, Ollie Pope. Was it two fifties? I think he got this series. Yep. Um, there was another one or two in the New Zealand series as well. Um, well, he converted Pearson, you know, when he was born or before he was born. I think. Yeah, um, I but, mean, yeah, you're <laughs> preaching to the preached here. I don't <laughs> but, think this uh, is much of an issue. But is he converted you yet, Ethan? Yes. I, I think he's, he's spot safe. I, I I was questioning his role on the side when McCallum chucked him at number three. Yeah. But, but he seems to have benefited from the, the freedom that the, the team have trusted him with. And I, I guess it, it solves one of the English dilemmas of always having too many batsmen in the lower middle order and not enough in the, in the top three. So it gives them a little bit of flexibility there. But there's certainly been a few innings where the team has struggled, but he's come out and played with confidence and hit a high strike rate, 60 or 70. And, and he looks a lock in the side for, for a little bit of time. Again, it remains to be seen if, if that can transition into other pitches and conditions, but it, it looks looks pretty good to me. Um, so I, I think I'm, I'm going to jump on the, the Pearson boat. I'm not saying any double hundreds at the Adelaide Oval are coming anytime soon, but he it, it looks a solid player, living up to a little bit of the English hype. We talk about um, look, seeing the, the class or the lack of class of the South African players. Um, Pope is one of those players that you, you can see that he has the potential to be something pretty special. Um, and he's, he's starting to, um, to, to live up to that. Uh, Navod, not to put you on the spot, but any, um, any final comments about the, the series from, from your perspective? Um, any sort of takeaways uh, for you? Yeah, I guess... The, the South African batting is just the real disappointment for me. And that's, I think that's my main takeaway. They have, I think, one of the best bowling lineups uh, in the world. Amongst the best, you know, like Australia and New Zealand, I think they also have, and England as well, they also have fantastic bowling lineups. And they're one of the best, but their batting really lets them down. It's really their weak point. They may be Elgar, but again, he didn't really perform here. No one is really up. No one's really scoring runs that they need to score. Um, and it's just, it's just really disappointing to see such a, a good side um, with such a strong bowling lineup of Rabada, um, Maharaj, and all the other players in Gidi as well. Just not win anything. Oh, they did win one test, but not really do anything other than that. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's my main takeaway. Just South Africa really needs to fix their, their batting lineup. Yeah. Um, and now just to revisit our predictions that we made at, at the start of the series. Um, well, we've already spoken about Pearson's quite interesting one of saying 3-0 at the start and then after the first test, changing it to 0-3. Um, and three. Um, But with uh, most runs, um, he predicted Ben Stokes, um, who I think was, yeah, he was the second highest run scorer 
um, with 149 runs at 37. So we'll give you a half a tick for that one, Pearson. Uh, their most wickets were Bader, um, who ended up with the second most wickets um, with uh, 14. Oh, sorry, no, equal, equal top with Stuart Broad, both on 14 wickets. So a bit better with the player predictions, at least. Um, Ethan, yeah. you said, you correctly said 2-1 to the English. Um, and correctly predicted a Crawley 50 as well. So brilliant stuff by you, Ethan. Yet again, oh, with your predictions. This is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> that you get plaudits for hitting a 50 is comical. Oh, God. Honestly, the, the odds are against it because the first first probably five innings, it, it, it was out of it and he clutched, clutched up when it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah, that's Basically, right. Basically, yeah. I think he he ended up yeah he ended up as the third highest run scorer in the series as well, <laughs> um, with 134 runs at 33.5. So yeah, an impressive effort when he really only had one one good innings. Uh, Navod, you also correctly predicted a two one victory. Said the most runs would go to Joe Root, um, which what didn't seem like a controversial prediction, but in the end. I don't know how many runs he scored exactly, but yeah, I, I, I don't think he cracked the the ton. Um, no, across the entire know. series, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's um, you've got a bit unlucky there. I think Nevada, yeah. their most wickets, you also correctly said Rabada. Um, I said England three nil. Um, and most runs to Peterson uh, from South Africa. I was a bit too optimistic about that, that's for sure. Um, and then I said Ollie Robinson would get most wickets uh, and he got close in his two matches. I think he was yeah two wickets behind um, Rabada and Broad. Um, so yeah, overall, I think we've done okay with that. But um, for, for, for clarification, both for the viewers and more so myself, who was the other top wicket taker and who was the top run scorer? I'm assuming Pope is top run scorer. No, so... Top run scorer. Right. Was, oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, Pope was top yeah. run scorer, 179 at 45. Um, yep, and top sense. wicket taker was Stuart Broad. And Stuart Broad at 14, Broad. Yeah. 14 wickets at 15.57. And Rabada, 14 wickets at 23.35. What one final question for you on those figures. Where does folks rank? Because well, I'm surprised, despite having hit a ton, that he didn't surpass Crawley. It's going to be... Which clearly means he did nothing in all the other innings. One, but... one run behind. Oh, oh yeah. that's harsh. Okay. But I, I, no, I suspect he didn't bat in as many innings. Yeah, that yeah, would true. be true. Yeah, yeah definitely. The game Crawley at 70, opinion. he didn't bat. <laughs> that is a good point. Yes. And he bats with possibly the worst tail in world cricket. Yeah. Now, a couple of final points before we move on from this series. Uh, we spoke about Joe Root um, failing in each three tests, um, and that has prompted Vast Ship um, to, to come back after having his last stat shot down quite mercilessly by Pearson, <laughs> I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, he wasn't happy about that. But uh, now he, he's back for more, um, saying that Joe Root maybe should be dropped from the team, that he's a bit past it. Uh, <laughs> Jason, uh, what do you have to say to, to Vasunta on this one? I must say that's not the stat I thought he was going to bring out and not the stat you'd mentioned he was going to bring out. So I'm, no. I'm slightly taken aback. <laughs> I, I'm quietly confident that that's in jest. I yes. would suggest that if Root's getting dropped, then probably there's pretty much no test batsman in the world that warrants selection, being he is still probably the best in the world. So I'm not going to take it with any more than a touch of a grain of salt. And I think I might move on without comment. Yes. I yeah, think no, it's, 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 a, it's a hidden concession is how I would describe it. I think he knows he's lost this debate. Yeah, he's getting a bit desperate now. But Ethan, you make a, a good point here. Take us through that. Well, the, the 40, 46 runs was, was the mark that Joe Root hit in, in the entire series. Uh, Crawley did, did surpass it, surpass it in, in the one innings. And, and Stuart Broad, the... The leading wicket taker also managed to hit more runs as well. So, uh, I mean, while while we say this, Bath still doesn't have a point. So it's, yeah. it's just a, a bit a bit of fun on, on yes. top of this outrageous quote. It is, yeah. But we we definitely didn't expect to be um, saying that Crawley's scoring more runs than Joe Root in one innings at the start of the series. So, um, yeah, that that at least um, has been quite interesting. Okay, the other 
big series um, over the past couple of weeks has been the Chapel Hadley Trophy. Um, but before we discuss that, even before the series started, Australia were coming in on the back foot um, after a shock loss um, to Zimbabwe um, in the final ODI of that series. We obviously had the, the first two matches in that series um, go very much in favour of the Australians. And it looked like Pearson's prediction that Australia would win by either 100 runs or with 15 overs to spare in each of the matches was going to um, come spectacularly true. Um, but things were turned in their head in the final match as Australia was dismissed for just 141 um, with David Warner scoring 94 of that 141. So it was a stunning collapse uh, by the rest of the team. Ryan Bell, um, a leg spinner, I think he is, picked up five for 10 um, off three overs. Uh, very impressive effort by him. Uh, and then Zimbabwe um, successfully chased that um, in 39 overs uh, with Regis Chikamba, their captain, um, being the, well, well, leading the way um, with a handy 37. So Ethan, uh, that wasn't what we ex expected at all. It, it's sort of hard to talk about it now that we've just beaten um, New Zealand in three matches, but a good performance by Zimbabwe, at least something to, to take home with them uh, from the series. Yeah, honest, honestly, this, this result, although, you know, extremely disappointing, just, just reiterates the fact that no one, no one really cares about these bilateral ODI series in the middle of nowhere. I think, you know, 3-0 against New Zealand, 2-1 against Zimbabwe. Does, does it really matter? I mean, no. Uh, no is the short answer. I think oh, David Warner was, was, a, was a plus. Uh, Adam Zampa, one not out. That's, that's, uh, that's the positives all done. Um, and it was a lot of mediocrity from the rest of the batting lineup. Um, I think everyone, well, no one passed five except for Glenn Maxwell and David Warner. And yes, it was Ryan Bell, the, the part-time leg spinner, who managed to take five for 10. Before this series, he had nine wickets in, I think, 31 games. And he managed to take eight wickets in three games here. So a bit of a, bit of a turnaround uh, for Ryan Bell's leggies. Uh, but yeah, it was it was quite a, quite a disappointing showing really from Australia. Not a whole lot of positives and a, a couple of really rough shots in there as well. Arguably, the spotlight was cast on a couple of players and maybe that had a part to play in Aaron Finch's retirement later on. As you mentioned, Crawley sort of gets away with things because England are having a bit of success right now, but certainly in a losing side, side the players who are struggling a bit, they, they tend to take the spotlight. And it was just well well played by Zimbabwe to chase it down in the end. Uh, they did it with a little bit of a little bit of difficulty, three wicket victory, but uh, that that's certainly one that they'll remember. And good to see that the tour was worthwhile for them. But you know, as yeah. a as an Aussie fan, I, I I don't really mind that much. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. But I think you're being a bit harsh on ODI cricket bilateral series. There, you know, I think it's a, a good thing having Zimbabwe beating Australia in Australia. That's something that will go in their history books for years to come. Um, so uh, yeah, it's not a bad. I think um, I think it was all right. It was good to see. I, yeah, I think it was one of those things. You're happy that Australia lost um, in some sense, just to give a bit more interest to it. Um, but then, as we alluded to, things dramatically changed for the Australians in the second series um, in the Chapel Hadley Trophy, um, as it is as it is called. Um, beating New Zealand 3-0. Um, and Ethan, I'll go back to you again because I, I know you have similar views to myself on this one. Uh, really, New Zealand showed that no matter how well they might do at home or in, a, in other countries like England or something, when they come to Australia, they're still scared of us and they're not even close, whether it be Test, whether it be T20, whether it be the Cricket World Cup final or, it, or the Chapel Hadley Trophy, they're, they're never going to do anything against us, are they, Ethan? Yeah, well, I think we were talking about this before, but it's just hard as an Australian fan to take New Zealand seriously because whenever they seem to come to Australia, they don't turn up and they just end up getting swept in every series. I mean, you can knock out England every World Cup and, and that that's uh, I'll, I'll shake the hand of any Kiwi fan for that. But the second they step onto these Australian shores, they're, they're not really a, a competitive side. So that I think they're always a, a B-class team in the mind of, any Australian fan just because they haven't been able to turn up 
um, when when playing away against us. That being said, it was like it was a little a little bit of a run for our money in the the first game, which ended up being quite an entertaining one. But you know, when when the fact that they've done worse against us than Zimbabwe did just just shows that perhaps they're not to be taken too seriously in these conditions. <laughs> yes, that that is very true. Um, we may as well just go through the games because they each did have um, a fair bit of interest in them. Uh, the first, obviously, Australia were in quite a poor position um, until Kerry and Green came to the crease. Kerry ended up with 85, his seventh ODI 50. Uh, and then Cam Green, really a, a breakthrough knock for him with 89, his first ODI 50. Um, and then that uh, gave Australia a total of 230, oh, sorry, what am I saying here? Australia were batting second, New Zealand batted first and were sort of something that became apparent throughout the whole series, a bit bogged down, probably didn't quite get the total to where it could have been, 232 they scored. Um, but yeah, Cam Green, really the, the hero with this one. He had cramps and everything, but um, he, he got Australia through in the end of it. Yeah, definitely. It was one of those, um, it, it was a very interesting game, actually. It looked definitely like more of a, a chasing than a setting pitch, for sure. Um, I think um, we did have, there were 340s or so from New Zealand, but ultimately that wasn't enough because everyone just sort of collapsed. Um, and yeah, as you said, 232 is pretty a subpar for an ODI. Um, but yeah, we was we were thinking okay, this should be an easy chase for Australia, but it seems like this this pitch in in Cairns is is quite a difficult one. Um, so for everyone to really collapse, basically, um, you know, set batsman like Smith who scored a century in the last game, but you know he only scored one here. Um, and then yeah, you know, for a number number seven, Cam Green to come in and, and hit eighty nine was really good and at quite a good pace as well. Ten fours and one six. Uh, with the 96 strike rate. It was just really fun to watch. Um, yeah, it was a good game, really good game. And uh, Cam Green, yeah, played really well. Yeah, really, uh, now I'm remembering the game actually a <laughs> bit more now. And um, it was uh, in Australia's batting innings, it was sort of a, a tale of of two stories, I guess. Um, early on, Trent Bolt and Matt Henry looked very dominant. Um, well, for all of the Rovers, Trent Bolt four for forty, Matt Henry two for fifty. But then when they went off, Pearson, um, it just sort of exposed New Zealand's lack of second choice bowlers a little bit. In particular, not having a, a spinner who can consistently give them overs. I noticed it was in contrast to Australia, where we got some really um, helpful performance by Glenn Maxwell four for fifty two. He got in that game. New Zealand in the middle stages of the match um, sort of let Australia get back on top a bit, um, especially with with Cam Green there by not having that those other bowlers. Yeah, I think what was sorely missed for New Zealand was that second quality spinner. To my knowledge, I don't think Ish Sodi played, or at least he didn't play in the third game. I think he was a big miss for New Zealand. I think had he been there as their first choice wicket-taking leg spinner, they could have fared much better. I would note that each game was actually quite close. You did have to get bailed out by the lower order a couple of times. Cam Green produced a top-quality knock for a tail-ender to drag you home in one of those games. So games like that were definitely games where I think a wicket-taking spinner, just for that bit of variety, would have been very, very useful. So I, I I think I largely agree with the sentiment you've brought out here, is they, they just lack a bit of depth for me. I think their bowling attack is okay. Their batting lineup is unspectacular. I think, and 2019 is an example of this, they do rely quite a lot on Williamson holding everything together. I think, I know, in pretty much every game they won in 2019, he scored runs. This is perhaps a more true evaluation of a player carrying a team than Joe Root in England, as Vass likes to bring up. So I do, I do think that is definitely an issue they need to deal with. But yeah, I think more depth and maybe one more player they can rely on for runs and just a return of Ish Sodi could change their fortunes a bit. But perhaps they're just not as good as some people think. 
Yeah, well, you, you mentioned the batting there, and that was definitely the story of the second match. Um, Australia set them 195, largely thanks to Smith's 61. Uh, but then that batting innings by New Zealand, it was one of the, the worst batting performances you ever see, really. Um, no one getting over 20, a total of 82, their sixth lowest of all time, I think, um, second lowest uh, against Australia. Um, and really, it was just sort of an odd innings, Ethan. They almost looked like, I think um, it was Kerry O'Keefe who called them deer in, um, deers in headlights. Uh, they just sort of froze almost in a way, epitomised by Kane Williamson, 17 or 58. Um, I think probably 40 of those balls were just defensive shots. Uh, you know, the bowling of Hazelwood and Stark just um, completely caused them to, to seize up. Yeah, it was a, a mixture of tight bowling, but also confused batting. You know, when Sean Abbott's taking two for one or five overs, that things are not quite right with the world. Um, and I mean, you can place some blame on, on these low scoring pitches, but I think this comes down to a, yeah, a, a lack of strategy and, and game plan, perhaps from New Zealand. And um, we've spoken previously about how sides having not played as many one day internationals these days are a bit bit out of form and confused as to their game plan and I think that was the issue here with uh, the Kiwis I mean they they were down to three for 14 very early on and they needed a sort of rescue mission and that's what they perhaps tried to do early on um, but then it, it never really got going and the, the fact looking through that scorecard you you barely see someone striking above 50 and the only real bowlers who bowled a decent amount and went at more than two and over was was Adam Zampa who ended up with five for 35. So uh, I think New Zealand just got it wrong in terms of the, the game plan. They got off to a poor start and they couldn't recover and they just didn't pick their right moments to try and claw back into the game. Yeah, and, and Pearson mentioned how reliant they are on Kane Williamson. Well, he was really in terrible form. That wicket, um, how he got out, uh, a full toss by Zampa, which should have been sent for 12. Um, he ended up getting LBW with it. It was a Quite uh, embarrassing dismissal there. Um, but Navide, I think it also shows um, the strength of Australia's bowling lineup as well, particularly when, when Mitchell Stark's um, bowling well. I think he, he picked up early wickets in, in his first spell um, in each of the games, I think. And then Josh Hazelwood, no one can score a run off him um, in any form of the game at the moment, can they? Um, and then, of course, Sean Abbott, um, we definitely weren't expecting him to be so dominant. Uh, uh, and then the spinners of Zampa and Maxwell um, playing very well too. Australia's got a fair bit of um, depth in our bowling now. Yeah, well, when, when Mitchell Stark can land the balls on the pitch, then he's, he's not bad. But, um, yeah, look, I think for me, yeah, the, the bowling lineup is quite good. Um, Hazelwood is, is absolutely fantastic. I think he's one of those three format players who just – is just impeccable in, in all forms of the game, test, T T20, ODI, regardless of what he plays. He, he just bowls really, really well. Um, he, he's someone who's really evolved their craft really quite well. Uh, and, and you can also say that about Zampa. Zampa wasn't too good a few years ago, but he's really changed his how he bowls. And, and he, he, it's, it's much better to see him. I mean, not fire for him that second game, um, which I'm, yeah, I'm looking at now. So, yeah. But Sean Abbott was by far the most impressive for me. Um, like 0.2 economy is just ridiculous. Like you don't see that. And and, and two <laughs> wickets, it, it was just like, oh my God. Yeah. It was, yeah, he, he was probably for me the the star. I know Zampa got the Pfeiffer, but um, yeah, it's just really interesting. Like not it was just he bowled a maiden, uh, like a wicket maiden or something like that, Sean Abbott. It was just really fantastic. Um, yeah, Stoinis um is also quite good. I think Stoinis provides uh, I don't he didn't really do it this um, series, but he provides um, that extra bat as well, that extra batting capability. So I'm a big fan of him as well. Of course, plays with the stars as well. So a little bit of bias there. And Glenn Maxwell, of course, I've always rated as that sort of, yeah, again, sort of like a stoyness can bat and also can bowl quite well as well. So, yeah, there is some um, good depth there. Um, Stark's getting on in, in years, I think. Uh, so, you know, maybe he'll he'll retire eventually from old age uh, or, you know, he won't be able to bowl any of them on the pitch. But Whichever comes first, I think um, that'll be the time for him. But otherwise, you know, there's, it's a very solid uh, lining, a bowling lineup. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is true. 
Um, and then finally, in the third ODI, um, we had Stephen Smith, the greatest batsman in the world, uh, beginning to reassert himself on um, the ODI stage as well with 105, going into 10th in the ODI batting rankings now, I see. So he'll be number one in no time. Baba Azam, better watch out. Uh, but probably the least eventful of the three games, Australia won by 25 in the end. Bit of a partnership between Glenn Phillips, who made 47, and Jimmy Neesham, who 36. Um, but I think Green got the breakthrough there um, and Australia sealed the series. Um, Ethan, the final question to come out of it, and I know you've been someone who's been um, sort of discussing this uh, for quite a few months now, and it's to do with Australia's best batting order and batting lineup, uh, and in particular, sort of how our all rounders fit in there. Um, we've really got three all-rounders um, who, who could be in there now. Cam Green having a great series, Marcus Stoinis having a terrible series, um, and then, of course, Mitch Marsh, who didn't play, um, but another quality batsman as well. So that's the one side of it, sort of who do you play out of that? And then there's also Smith and Labashane, both sort of those um, rock or glue players, whatever you want to call them. Uh, can they? Can all those players be in the same side at the same time yeah we've we've got a bit of selection issues because it while we've got a lot of talent on the international stage we've got a few players who haven't really nailed their spot down and we've you know previously been guilty of i guess suffering from a bit of mediocrity in the whole lineup which is evidenced by the last two series i think aaron finch leaving the one day side will hopefully paved the way from, for Travis Head, who has had great results at the top of the order, um, hit that 100 or 70-odd balls against Pakistan. I'm hoping he takes the reign at, at the top. I think in terms of the all-rounders, we've got March, Stoinis, and, and Green. I think Green's had a really good series and he looks promising, but I don't, uh, I don't suspect we'll be dropping Stoinis from the side, even though perhaps it, it would be a, a potential call. Stoinis, I think, Historically, he's been quite quite good in the T20 format, but but not not so prolific in the one days. Um, so I'd be open certainly to Green, you know, grabbing that spot, but uh, not yet. Uh, I don't think realistically. And then it's a it's a matter of thinking. Well, what what do we do with our number four spot? Um, the first or well, the at Zimbabwe game in the first two games, we were down to four for fifty, pretty much three games in the row, and we needed someone, and it was often Carey and Green to bail us out. Um, and I think Manus in the third game probably has done enough with that 52 just to say, okay, we need a bit of stability and, and glue. I think you can argue there's probably too much glue with Smith, Labuschagne and Carey as three to five. And if we get batting friendly pitches against England or India, we might be in some trouble and could benefit from a Mitch Marsh. But that might be something that we assess the conditions on and if, if it's a low-scoring or high-scoring pitch, change the team. But I suspect it'll be Labuschagne and Stoinis rather boringly keeping their spots. Yeah, I, I suspect you're probably right. But um, you know, I'm beginning to think that we don't need both Smith and Labuschagne in the side, especially when Smith's in, in good form. A bit too much glue and not enough paper or something i don't know i'm trying to think, i'm trying to think of an analogy there and that doesn't really work so much i think you know what i mean though um and yes we'll be interesting to see uh what what our team does look like um as we go forward uh then of course the the big thing to come out of the series really wasn't the cricket so much but it was the decision of aaron finch to retire after um, well, hardly passing 10 for this entire year, I think. Um, so it was definitely the, the time to go. I think there was probably not much question about that. Um, but there's been a quite, um, you know, hearty debate in recent days over who's going to be our next one day captain with what it seems half the team um, being thrown in the mix um, as, as potential captains. I've heard uh, Warner and Smith um, a lot of talk about, well, overturning Warner's ban on the captaincy um, or either um, giving Smith it back again. Um, Mitch Marsh has been thrown in there. I think someone recently, uh, some ex-player, um, through his support behind Marsh becoming captain, 
Maxwell, who I know in the VODs, a big fan of becoming captain. Kerry, um, who is the vice captain at the moment, who I think, um, who I think should would be a sensible move to get it. Uh, and then, of course, Pat Cummins as well, the test captain. Um, I'll start with you, Pearson. Who do you think um, should get the job? I don't like to say it, but I do think it has to be Smith. I don't really see who else it can be. As a basic rule of thumb, I think it's too much work for Cummins as a pace bowler to become a captain in both red and white ball cricket. I think that's too risky and unnecessary. I also don't think he's an immediate selection all the time in that team. I think particularly having seen what Abbott's done, there is probably more room for rotation in that pace bowling arsenal. I would honestly select Stark and Hazelwood over Cummins to begin with, which probably means he's not always going to be a guaranteed selection. I would still pick him nine times out of 10, but I think that rules him out. I think Marsh is good. If it were a T20 captaincy, I'd consider him, but this is one day. He's, he's not actually had a long run in the side yet to suggest he is really in their plans as a permanent selection. I can empathise with your Kerry thoughts. My issue with Kerry is I just don't think he's that good. I think there will be periods with him, unlike a Steve Smith, where he will drop off the pace a bit. He's certainly been dropped before in his career. Of course, that's currently the case in the T20 side. There's no guarantee that doesn't also happen in ODIs. We may see someone like an Inglis, who I suspect will be the new first-choice opener, to replace Finch come in and he is a keeper so I don't think we can assure his long-term place in the side Warner I think he's just too old I don't think you can pick a captain for one year so it really leaves Steve Smith he's the one player in their top seven that I would say is truly undroppable he scores runs all the time it's somehow become arguably his strongest format one day cricket at present so I think he makes the most sense he's captain before he knows what he's doing he's a senior player and he's still got a few years left in him to captain so personally I would go Steve Smith but I could understand if they did go a different way yeah you make a good argument there um something I I have heard said is that you know it's probably not going to be that much longer that Finch stays captain of the T20 side as well so they may look to have someone who can be the white ball captain for both of those. And that might speak against Smith a little bit because, you know, there's a few questions over whether he's going to be the, the T20 team going forward. Uh, Ethan, what do you think? That's a good point you raised there because I'm, I'm not sure how much actually overlap between our T20 and one day sides there actually is. As, as Pearson mentioned, Kerry, Kerry doesn't, play in, in the T20 side currently, but we, we opt for Wade. Um, Smith is currently in the side, but in almost paradoxically. So, yeah, yeah. We, we, we seem to always question his place in the side. And, and so off that, you know, arguably the only person who's a solid in both sides is probably Maxwell. Um, I, I think Smith is a, a safe call for the one-day captaincy. I, I don't think you really need the the real poster boy leader that you might go for in a, in a test sense, but you probably don't need the, the tactician of that a, a T20 captain may have, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of good candidates, but no one really great. No one really at a domestic or IPL level who's really taken the captaincy. I think Warner, as mentioned, is, is probably on the, the aged side and we, we haven't historically been, you know, that that keen to go with Maxwell despite him captaining the stars. So I, I can I can actually see Steve Smith doing both formats, even though perhaps it, it's an uncomfortable reality for the T20 fans. Yeah, yeah, no, you're slowly, both your business slowly convincing me of that fact. Uh, Navad, make the case for Maxwell here, because he is the other one who's in both sides. So um, yeah, at this stage, it looks like it's between Smith and Maxwell. So why would you go on Maxwell over Smith? I think the reason why I go Maxwell is because I think he just has a really good cricket brain. And you can see that with Aaron Finch. Um, yeah, he has a great cricket brain as well. I think he's really good. Perhaps maybe Maxwell's training with the stars in terms of captaincy hasn't been quite as good as it, it could have been. Uh, but I definitely think, I think he, going forward, is is probably for at least the T20 side is probably going forward the best option for captaincy, I think. 
Um, Steve Smith, I think, yes, he could captain the T20 side, but then he's not really needed in the T20 side. Or if anything, he's a hindrance to the T20 side as that sort of anchor or glue role, which you don't really need in a T20 side. You want an attacking, um, all these attacking batsmen. You don't really want that glue anymore. Um, so I, that's why I think Maxwell is the best. I think mean, he just has that that cricket brain that can really be used. If if he if he's really trained properly for the role, then he, he can be really a, a, quite a good captain, I think. And especially with his aggressive attacking bat, batting nature, I think he'll be a good fit. Mm, yeah, no, you make a good pick. I think, Ethan, you say he's also captained the IPL at times. Uh, Maxwell. That's news to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh Smith. Smith. <laughs> okay, that, yeah, no, that makes more sense. Come no, he needs to speak. <laughs> but, but, yeah. no, you, make, you make an interesting point, Navon. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, my basic disagreements, but I'm just going to start a debate here for the sake of it, is I don't necessarily think Australia's in a low point. I think you look at when Morgan got appointed in 20, what was that, 2014, I think he got the England one-day job. He got it like a Maxwell because he was entirely unlike his predecessor in the way he played cricket. His predecessor was Cook. Cook was solid, stable, hit runs at a respectable rate and was quite consistent. Yes, obviously Finch isn't as slow as Cook, but the method of slow accumulation in singles rather than just sixes and fours is him. I think Morgan made sense because England were not good at cricket. We got knocked out not three months later in the group stage by Bangladesh in a World Cup. I don't think Australia is a bad enough team to warrant a revolutionary change in captaincy style. I think at least for the short term, just even if it's just to get you through to the World Cup next year, I don't think there's enough time to go, all right, we're binning all our anchors and we're going all out attack, which I do think is something Maxwell would be encouraged and be quite interested in doing. So I think, yes, Maxwell's probably an option. Yes, he's an okay captain. He's led the Stars to being one of the worst teams in the league for a few years in a row. So maybe not, but... I do think if you want to pick Maxwell, wait till the end of the World Cup. There's no point trying to revitalize your style basically a year out. I think it's too much risk for not enough reward. Yeah, I think the other thing with Maxwell is he's taking on um, an increased role with the ball too. Um, mm. And he's also sort of plays a crucial fielding role for us as well. So yeah. there are sort of a lot of responsibilities on him if he did become the captain. But I think... Yeah, I think definitely Smith or Maxwell, we've decided they're the two. Yeah, but agree. Yeah. In the end, uh, they'll probably give it to, to Kerry or someone. <laughs> so we'll probably be proved <laughs> wrong. But uh, anyway, we'll say that for now. Okay, well, that brings us to the main event of this podcast. Uh, Navad's got a, a huge smile on his face because it is time to talk about <laughs> Sri Lanka, the, the rise of, of Sri Lankan cricket. Um, you know, it, it's first first the Asia Cup. It'll be the 2020 World Cup later on in this year, won't it, Navad? Um, it's happy days again for the Sri Lankans um, as they win the Asia Cup. Yeah, I'll keep my hopes kind of you know, settled down for the World Cup. We'll, we'll see how that goes. It is in Australia, of course, so our spinners will be uh, probably useless so on our lap pitches here. But um, no, um, it was a wonderful campaign from Sri Lanka. Uh, we concluded uh, the, the whole tournament by winning it. Uh, as champions, and we've actually won the second most Asia Cups in the history of the Asia Cup. So we've got six series wins versus India's seven series wins. So we're getting there. Eventually, we'll hopefully overcome, over, overtake India there. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to give a quick recap, a bit, bit of a timeline of our campaign. Um, and it, it started quite bad. Uh, we lost to Afghanistan, absolutely thrashed by Afghanistan, bowled out for 105 in a T20. Pretty grim days. I thought, you know, okay, we're we're pretty much screwed for not only the Asia Cup but the World World Cup coming up as well. So yeah, we were pretty. I thought we were pretty screwed. There was a brief glimpse of hope from Barnaka Rajpaksha, and that was, I think, something that was really for, you know, uh, what's the word? Foretelling, I guess, for the future of what he would do in the rest of the tournament. Um, and a little bit from Chamu Karanatna, but Gurbaz, um, a wicketkeeper for Afghanistan, and, and I think a rising player for them shone through the tournament uh, and in this game as well. And he really helped steer Afghanistan to win. So probably for the World Cup, he, is, he was actually named in their squad uh, that was announced, I think, earlier today. Um, he's he's a, quite a good player. So might see some good things from him. 
after that, we did win against uh, Bangladesh, who are probably our closest rivals. Um, so we chased 184, which was quite a big uh, target for us, actually. Uh, in 19.2 overs, it was quite a close game, actually. We lost our key set batsman, and then Asada Fernando, uh, a tail-ender, uh, just brought us home, so it was good. But uh, overall, really good innings from Kusar Mendes and the captain, Dustin Sharnaka. 60 of 37 for Mendes and 45 of 33 for Dustin Sharnaka. So it was really good. Then we versed Afghanistan again, who I, I was at this point thinking were our mortal enemies. Uh, but yeah, we actually su successfully chased 175. So at Charger, which was the stadium in the UAE, um, it's actually the highest successful chase in T20s. So there you go. Um, yeah, again, Gerbaz, as I mentioned, once again, starring for Afghanistan, a fantastic 84 of 45. So yeah, that's it's absolutely impeccable. I think he'll be really good for Afghanistan. But going back to Sri Lanka, who cares about them? Um, Dilshan Madhushankar, uh, the star, two wickets. Um, he bowled quite well throughout the tournament. Towards the end, I think he sort of dropped off a little bit, uh, but he was still very good. And quick fire 30s from Misanka, Mendes, Gunatilaka, and Rajapaksha took us over the line. And I think that's one thing that this game really highlighted was our middle order consistency just was was there. Like every, there wasn't just one sole performer like Afghanistan with Gerbaz. There were a lot of performers and everyone sort of chipped in with their, you know, fair share. And it, it just really showed that we had some consistency that a side like Afghanistan didn't have. Just, just had one key player sort of performing, whereas, you know, we had five players performing. Um, next game, India versus Sri Lanka. And I was feeling quite happy. Okay, we've won two out of the three games we've played, but we'll probably lose this one. It is India. We have a terrible record against them, absolutely garbage record. But Dilshan Madhushankar, again, bowled really, really exceptionally. Three wickets with an economy of six. Um, took out Kohli, uh, Deepak Huda, and Rishabh Pant. Um, and, yeah, the ball to Kohli, I think everyone here actually has watched that. It was absolutely fantastic. Just went through him completely and destroyed the stumps. So it was really, really a good ball. Uh, but yeah, once again, consistency again showed um, showed its head. It really shone bright for Sri Lanka. 50s for both Nisanka and Mendes and at a good pace as well. I think Nisanka was striking at 140 or something like that. Um, and then a quick fire, 25 and 33 from Rajapaksha and Chanaka. Again, another Rajapaksha is really showing that, you know, he can consistently bat and bat quite fast as well. Then um, because of a series of, uh, I think, a loss by India and something else from Afghanistan. That meant that Pakistan and Sri Lanka were already in the final. So we had a sort of warm-up final before the final. Weird system. I know it should have just been the final and that, but yeah, we had a game against Pakistan who we were already going to verse in the final uh, the next day, pretty much. Um, and we had a debutant, uh, Pramod Madhushan, so Madhushankar, Madhushan, so it's a bit confusing. But he had an absolutely fantastic debut. Two wickets, uh, big player Rizwan and Harris Raf as well. And then the man, the legend, three for for Hasaranga. You know, can't stop him. He, he's great. Um, and then yet another 50 from Nisanka. So again, that consistency, it, it keeps coming back. And then again, I'm going to say again a lot, Rajapaksha and Shanaka, quick fire 20s to seal off a, quite a low chase of 124. And then the actual final against Pakistan again. This time we were setting. So we'd actually, I think Prab's actually sent an interesting stat. We lose most of our, uh, our chasing, sorry, our setting um, games where we, where, where we set the target. But this was, you know, it was really, it shows how chase friendly the UAE is really. Um, and I was quite worried. The openers uh, who I was talking about, they're consistent now. They weren't consistent in this game. They fell quite quickly and it was looking quite rough. But Barnaka Rajapaksha, the man who I've been talking about consistently being consistent, there we go. Um, just one of the best batting innings that I've ever seen. Um, and he steered us to a respectable 170. He came in at 36 for three and hit a 71 not out of 45. Absolutely fantastic innings. Uh, and then a short cameo from Hasaranga, the man again, 36 off 21. Um, and then to top it off, we just had fantastic bowling from Sri Lanka. Despite uh, a 50 from Wizwan, I think Sri Lanka really induced a good collapse. A brilliant fourther from uh, Pramod Madhushan, who just debuted the other game, uh, and a threefer from Hasaranga. So, yeah, it's a lot of positive signs and the consistency. If we can continue to do this, especially leading to a World Cup, I think we have a good chance of, of doing well. I don't know about winning. I think that's a bit off the cards, but doing well, I think, better than what we did 
last year. I think we showed some signs of um, some hope, some signs of good cricket last 2020 World Cup, but I think it's really coming to fruition now. Um, just a quick going on the, the rankings. Hasaranga is now sixth on the all-rounder rankings, so he's, he's coming up. And again, in the bowling rankings last year, this time he was number one. He dropped off a bit because he got COVID, but now he's, he's fourth on the list, so he's coming back up again. Uh, and he ended up uh, second highest wicket taker of the series behind, I think, uh, Bhuvaneshwar Kumar. Uh, and Barnaka Rajapaksha, he's not in the top 10, but I did have a look where he was on the rankings. He moved a whopping 33 places from where he was uh, after a really, really, really good Asia Cup. So he's still 34th, so it's a long way to go, obviously. But um, overall, some really, really good positives. Just consistency, I think, is the biggest thing. And, and key performers performing in every game is what really won us this tournament. Uh, so some good signs for Sri Lanka cricket. Yeah, 100%. I, I think I saw a stat that before the tournament, only Bangladesh and Hong Kong were below you on sort of the betting odds and all the predictions on who to on who to win the tournament. And yeah, you, you've proven everyone wrong there. Um, before we go on, I should just explain for our listeners how the, the structure works of, of the tournament because it was very confusing. So basically after the initial round there was a final four I think I called it which ended up being a basically a separate tournament between those four um where they played each other um and then the final from that um so yeah a, a little confusing there but interesting tournament nonetheless um a couple of the other stories uh from the tournament Virat Kohli uh finding some form uh again with a century uh against albeit against uh afghanistan i think it was but he did end up as the second highest run scorer with 276 runs in the tournament at a slightly improved strike rate of 147 um is virat Kohli back ethan i i reckon i reckon he is i think we've been talking pretty much for the last few months saying uh after he gets that 100 maybe maybe the shackles will will come off and and he's He's largely shown us the moments of, of class that we associate with Virat Kohli. We've, we've spoken about how, you know, between zero and 10, he probably is the best batsman in the world, maybe just edging Zach Crawley there. But he always seems to have somehow find, find a way to, to get out, just playing an uncharacteristic rash shot, something away from his body. It, it must be said, he, he did hit 122 uh, this this time, we also got bowled to one of the worst dismissals I've seen in my life with a horrible swipe across the line. Um, but I think now that now that hundreds you know been made, I, I do expect a couple more. But I, I don't think we'll hit the same straps as we've previously associated with Brad Colley, just because of the you know the edging and pushing at the ball and the the lack of control that he used to have when he was at his best. Yeah, no, I, I'm I, I'm on the the line with you. He's had his break now. He went on his little holiday. He's been rested, and I think he is back in a bit of form now. But I know Pearson very much disagrees. Try not to spend too long going on about it, Pearson. But you can say a couple words. You know, I'll, I'll keep it brief. Uh, we're saying he's back in form of three innings. He's hit his 120. He had a 60 striking at 135, which is not that quick a 59 striking at 135, which is not that quick, and nothing else. His other innings have been 0, 11, 1, 17. His 35 came off 34 balls, which went a long way to them losing that game. And he hit 52 or 41, which is far too slow for a 50. Yes, he's consistent. Yes, he averages well. Yes, he averaged well last year. For the last two years, he averages 59.64 in T20 cricket. Does he do it often enough and aggressively enough in winning causes? No, he doesn't. Should he be dropped? No, because I think Rahul and Sharma are both worse. But I think what India need to learn, having just gone through a tournament, that they were at least on paper the best side in and not even coming close to making the final. I think all that should tell them is we need to move on and we need to revitalize our cricket to a more aggressive method. And a top three that includes three nerdlers of Rohit, Rahul and Kohli is not the way to do that. So yes, he's done okay. I think we're overrating his form. And he's symptomatic of an Indian side that's underperforming because it's still stuck in the 1990s. That's my view on the situation. 
<laughs> okay, well, I guess time will, will tell on that one. One final thing I would bring up about the Asia Cup was a dramatic match we had between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, Afghanistan set 129, um, but then we're looking fairly good uh, for most of the, the Pakistan innings uh, as Rashid Khan um, led the way for them there. And then I think Pakistan needed were nine, yeah, nine, nine wickets down uh, in the final over, needing 11 runs, I think, uh, with Naseem Shah and Muhammad Hasnain um, at the crease. Uh, but then Naseem Shah only needed two, two balls um, of that over to win the, to win the match, um, hitting two sixes off Fazal Haq Faruqi, um, I think. And uh, yeah, breaking uh, the hearts of the Afghanistanis who were at the match who uh, didn't didn't take it too lightly, um, I must say, actually. Uh, they were, I saw videos of them uh, pulling up chairs and setting fireworks off and everything. So, uh, yeah, it was quite dramatic scenes. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was an interesting tournament. There were, there were some good matches, um, uh, you would have to say. That. Did you guys see this match at all? An impressive effort by the same show. Yeah, I did actually see, um, yeah, I saw, I saw at least the scorecard. I'm not sure if I watched the highlights for that one. But, um, yeah, it was really impressive. I think he's um, coming up to be one of those sort of, um, you know, really, yeah, talented bowlers, I think, and one of those really good um, sort of, yeah, like quick, fast-paced uh, batsmen as well. So, yeah, quite interesting to see where he goes next. Yeah, the John Hastings-style bowler who can hit a few big bombs. Ethan, sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah, this was the game with the uh, well, the almost infamous altercation between Asif Ali and oh, uh, yeah. was it Farid Ahmed, where there was an almost almost an incident in in the center of the pitch, and I reckon that that played a part. And to that, you see the video of the grabbing the the chairs out of the stands and tossing yeah. them around. I reckon that was the aftermath of that. So explain explain what happened with that altercation. I didn't really catch it. Yeah, so after Farid dismissed um, Abid Ali, he went and celebrated li literally right right in his face. Um, and yeah, uh, fair enough. Asif Ali wasn't wasn't too happy. <laughs> Pushed him away and went to raise the bat to to smack him. Uh, refrained at the last minute, but yeah, there was a tensions were were high in 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 such an important game, I suppose. Um, but yeah. All as well in the end. A couple of couple of fines got dished out, but I mean, perhaps what happened in the stands was yeah a bit more severe. Yeah, no, you haven't haven't seen scenes like that since Shane Warne and Marlon Samuels, wasn't it? In the in the media <laughs> all those years ago. Yeah, it's not often you see an altercation, but coming into this series uh, to this tournament, I now must confess I never heard of it before, and I thought it was just some sort of you know, tournament they do for a bit of money doesn't mean anything. But it seems that, you know, the fans take it pretty seriously and it's a pretty hard-fought tournament. So, uh, yeah, it was um, good to to follow, actually. Okay, well, I think that brings us probably to the end of the podcast. We've, um, I think we've done a good job of wrapping up a, a big two weeks. Got a bit of a break. We were just saying it's not a huge amount of cricket on um, the next couple of weeks. So, you might have to think of some other topics to discuss. Um, but thank you guys uh, for coming on. Have a good week. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. As, as is for you, have a good week as well. Oh, thank you. You're <laughs> always the, the one to uh, reciprocate there, yeah, which is very <laughs> nice. <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.